Just going to read from God's Word now. I'm going to get that out of the way just early on. Just we don't want any repeats of this morning. So from Ephesians chapter 4. As we said, one to check who'd be coming out tonight. Because it was a bit bad weather, I want to make sure there'd be a good number out. So I really appreciate everybody who's who's come out tonight. I know Ramsey does as well. And I have taken note of two or three names, by the way, who did say they were coming. Okay. <laughs> from verse 13. We've been preaching through this book, so we're at verse 13 of chapter 4. It's all been about unity, and, and then we go in to verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to come tonight and just ask for your blessing, your enabling, that you'll give us just that clarity of mind and that openness of heart that will help us to understand your word and then to apply that word into our lives. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the, the good things about getting a little bit older is that you can sometimes put down instances of forgetfulness to the aging process. I didn't try it this morning, but it's true. You know, that's what happens when you get older. But let me just be upfront and confess, I have always been inclined to moments of forgetfulness. I tend to get kind of caught up and involved in what I'm doing and then forget about what I should be actually doing and what needs to be done. I can forget all about that. Now, one classic instance of this example was one Saturday morning when I was a young man rushing to get to the train station in Ardrossan so I could get the train to Glasgow Central or somewhere that I needed to be. And I was just about out of the door after a hurried shower when I realised that I hadn't combed my hair. Now, I had thick, curly, bushy hair at this time in my life. I was a bit like Jimi Hendrix without the guitar. It's hard to believe, but it is actually... True. I know Grant, he was a mirror image of me in his youth as well. But there I was. So my hair really needed combed. I spent five minutes, you know, I'll, I'll do a few minutes, just rushing around the house, tearing the place to pieces, looking for this comb, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So I rushed off to the station. I managed to get there a couple of minutes early. And so I dived into the shop that's nearby, still there now, and asked with real urgency if he got a comb. Now, I noticed the shopkeeper gave me a long searching look, but I put it down to a little bit of annoyance from him that I was kind of hurrying him along a bit. Finally, a couple of minutes later, I was sitting on my seat in the train. I just took a moment or two just sitting there, just trying to get my breath and just calm down after all the hassle of this morning. And then I started to comb my hair and I stopped immediately because right at the front of my head, jammed into my hair, was the comb that I had lost. 
You see, my hair was so thick then that I could and often did just jam it in, and that's what I'd done that's that morning. But in rushing around, I'd forgot all about doing it. I was looking for it everywhere, and all the time, it was stuck right there in the front of my hair. No wonder I thought that shopkeeper looked at me twice. In fact, as I thought about it more, he must have been really desperate for a sale, or surely he would have told me, listen, son, you've already got a comb stuck to your head. Now, I'm highlighting, everybody thinks this is just a story I've made. Now, you don't really know it's true. But I'm highlighting forgetting because it's proven to be quite difficult time-wise to get real continuity in this evening series of sermons on Ephesians. And, and the theme that we're looking at tonight is so inextricably linked with what we looked at last time that I think it's vital that we do a bit of a, a review, a bit of a recap of that before we move on to what we're actually going to be focusing on in this passage. So last time then, from Ephesians 4, 7 to 12, we looked at the, the gifts that God gives. The gifts that he gives that as they are valued and as they are used, that will enable the church to maintain and to grow in unity. That will enable all God's people to work together and to live together in an ever-deepening experience of unity. And we saw there that the, the giver of these gifts is Christ, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And that the nature of these gifts, the gifts that are focused on in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, the nature of these gifts is that in one way or another, they are gifts related to God's word, which underlines for me the importance of keeping God's word central keeping the ministries of God's word central in the life of the church. If we are to be a truly spiritually united and spiritually healthy church, it's so vital then that the ministries of the word are valued and are kept central in the life of a church. And when that doesn't happen, when other things are allowed to take center stage in the life of a church, well, that might for a time seem excited. It might for a time draw the crowds in, but in the long term, it won't produce either deep spiritual unity or truly spiritually healthy churches. Finally, last time, we, we looked at the purpose of the gifts. And it is that through these ministers of the word, that they be used to prepare all God's people for service. All God's people for works of service, literally for works of ministry. For you see, we are all ministers together. There's no such thing as a special class of ministry. No such thing as that. Ministries of the word are given to help enable all of God's people to discover, develop and use their ministries. Okay, and as we use these gifts of ministries, they will help us, enable us to grow more and more, to attain together, it says, that unity which is God's will for us. Now, John Stott, again here as so often, points out something that I found and I think is both interesting and important. And that is that Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that our unity in Christ is a gift. 
It's a gift given to us by God. Given to us when we come to faith in him and so become one with Christ and one with one another. United by the common life that we share now in Jesus Christ. And yet here in Ephesians 4, Paul stresses here that unity in Christ is something that's both to be maintained, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and it's to be attained, verse 13 here, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Well, the point John Stott makes is that the parallels here are with holiness. For you see, when we become Christians, we are made holy in Christ as his righteousness becomes our righteousness. This is our position spiritually and eternally. But at the same time, though, we are called to live out our holiness visibly before the eyes of mankind. And we're then called to grow in that holiness, to attain to that holiness in the here and now. Now, it's exactly the same with unity. Our unity is a gift of God. Given the moment we put our faith, put our trust in the Christ, in the God of the Bible, in the God-man who came from heaven to this earth to die on the cross, who three days later rose from the dead, demonstrating his victory over sin and Satan and death and all the powers of evil, who then ascended to the Father and gave the gift of the Spirit, his Spirit, who comes into our lives then and enables us to share in something of that victory of Christ over sin, who enables us to live a life that pleases God. And so you see, by faith in this Jesus, we are united with him, united in the Spirit, and united in, by the shared life with one another. And again, as with holiness, what we're called to do is we're called to live out this unity visibly before the world. And we're called to grow into this spiritual eternal unity more and more in reality in the here and now. And this is essentially connected to what we're now going to move on to focus on tonight, maturity. We see here in, in verse 13, the two are set side by side. The two are seen as feeding one another and, and vice versa. You know, growth in true spiritual unity leads to growth in maturity, then leads to growth in unity, and on it goes on and on and on. Here's what it says. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, when Paul talks here of all that he does, all that God does, of, of God's people growing in their unity in the faith, in their shared understanding of the faith, that is of the foundational truths that make us Christians, of God's people growing in their knowledge of the Son of God, that is in their relationship with Jesus, in their experience of Jesus, getting to know him better and better, and as a result, more and more of his character then being reflected out from their lives, with this leading not only to unity 
but to maturity, growing maturity, even daring to aim for the perfect, to aim, to aspire to that which is unreachable in this life. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. To live to be then, as his people, that which Christ would have us be. You know, I looked at this, and then, then my eyes were open. Something my eyes were open to as, as I studied that this this week. And that is, I've always applied this this passage primarily to the individual, to the individual Christian, to myself. That it's as I do all that this passage says that I will grow in maturity, and then being mature and offering my gifts to the church will then play my part in helping the church to live out this kind of unity that is God's will for his people. And of course, all this is true, and it's clearly taught in the New Testament. And indeed, it's, it's implied here in Ephesians 4. But the primary focus that's demanded by the context, demanded by who Paul is writing to here, is the church as a whole. Is the church as a corporate entity. It's the church that's called to grow in the unity, in their unity in the faith, in their understanding of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. It is the church that's called to grow in their knowledge, in their relationship and experience of Jesus. It is the church that is called more and more to reflect out from its life more and more of the character of Christ. It is the church that is called to aspire to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And we can see here how all of this fits together. In that all of us are called to play our part individually in building up the body. We offer up whatever gifts, whatever resources, whatever we have to that end. And as we do that, the work never stops. It keeps on going until the church as a whole, until the church as a body is united in the faith and mature in Christ, in our relationship with Christ. So reflecting out the character of Christ and doing the work of Christ in our community. And the work never stops. The process keeps on going. The challenges keep on presenting themselves to be overcome until this is what we are, until this is who we are as a church. But what I want us to move on, what I want us to look at now, are the different signs, the indicators that tell us how we are doing in this, in this ongoing journey to maturity and so to unity. How far are we travelling? How well are we travelling? First then we see the marks of immaturity. Verse 14 says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So what then are the marks of an immature church and by extension an immature Christian? First, they're like children, like infants. Now, you know, we know that there's much about children that the Bible commends, like their humility, like their, their willingness to trust, their willingness to have faith. 
But here Paul warns us that there are aspects of childlikeness that we also need to be aware of. Like the lack of knowledge, their inexperience. Like their thoughtlessness, their rashness, which can leave them open to being easily persuaded and misdirected. And it's quite a picture that, that Paul goes on to, to paint here. Of these childish Christians, rather than childlike childish Christians, being just like little boats, powerless, powerfully tossed about by the wind and the waves in every direction, just whirling around like a top going here, there, and everywhere. You know, I've got to say, I've seen a fair bit of this during my time in ministry. You know, different waves of teaching throughout the years have swept across the church. Different fads and fashions that have for a time held sway in parts of the church. And you do find churches and you do find Christians who are always jumping around here, there, everywhere, who are always looking for the next big thing, that next exciting movement. And who don't seem to think that testing things by God's word or by seeing if these things are in line with God's character as revealed in the Bible is of any great importance. Now what matters is how exciting it is. Does it get the crowds in? Does it draw people in? I came across something like this years ago when I went to a conference at the Toronto Airport Vineyard just after the Toronto Blessing broke out. And I was in a, a seminar that was led by an area leader of one network of vineyard churches in the United States. And I was there when somebody asked this person a question. This is the question they asked. I remember it very well. For years, we were told in vineyard churches that the things that we are seeing here were of the devil. Now we are told that they are a sign of God's blessing in revival. What's going on? The reply, we were wrong. Simple as that. No reference to God's word, no attempt to justify biblically or theologically what was going on then or, or what was going on in the past. And just here to make my position clear, I find it very difficult to see people barking like dogs as a sign of the Spirit at work in power in men and women. I mean, we're told here in these verses that God's aim is to see people attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Why don't I ask, how does someone being reduced to bark like a dog to the level of an animal, how does it tie in with that? You see, when God's people are not rooted in the word, when they do not respect and value the ministries of the world. And when as a result of that, they're not growing in their relationship with Christ, in their understanding of Christ and his character, in their experience of Christ, then lacking that kind of rootedness, or to put it better, to tie in better with the imagery of these verses, lacking that kind of anger, then it is so easy for us to be influenced and persuaded, for us to be blown around here, there, and everywhere. And then secondly, look at what it says here about those who are misdirecting the church. Again, in verse 14, it speaks of the, the cunning and craftiness of men 
in their deceitful scheming. Now, the, the word that's translated here, cunning, has got its origins in dice playing and playing games of chance. And the craftiness of men in, in their deceitful scheming, well, largely, I suppose, that speaks for itself. But the idea is of those who deliberately trick the people of God and do that for their own ends, mislead God's people in order to further their own lives. Now, I'm sure that there are a number of different possible examples that could be given of this, but, but one that, jump, that jumps into my mind is those who teach the prosperity gospel, that a Christian should always be blessed, a Christian should always be healthy and always be wealthy, and if you're not, then that's down to you. That's because of your lack of faith, because that's God's will for you. There are a lot of teachers of this, men like Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Benny Hinn, and the one whose name I like the best, Creflo Dollar. Brilliant. But the most telling insight into this I, I came across in uh, Hank Hanegraaff and something that he tells of his experience of going to a prosperity gospel conference. And he talks of going into the, the massive car park of the conference centre that was hosting this event. And sure enough, he says, he came across the section of that car park where all the luxury cars that these speakers say is evidence one evidence of God's blessing on your life where they were all there. Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Cadillacs, top-of-the-range Mercedes, just keep on going, indulge your wildest fantasies and imagination. These cars were all there, side by side, in this section. So he asked, is this justification of the prosperity gospel? Well, here's the problem. This area of the car park was reserved for the speakers at this conference and its different seminars. You see, the prosperity gospel works, but primarily for those who teach it. Here are some interesting facts I found. The richest pastor in the world is Eder Macedo of Brazil, who's reckoned to be worth $1.1 billion dollars. Kenneth Copeland of the USA has a $740 million fortune. And seven of the top 20 richest pastors in the world come from Nigeria, a country where the average middle-class Nigerian they reckon earns about $650 per month. Amazing. Amazing. <coughs> that God's people... Christians who claim to follow a crucified Christ, to be part of a church that was founded by the first apostles and disciples who were beaten, harassed, and many of them martyred for their faith. Amazing that some of God's people can be deceived into accepting a travesty of the gospel such as this. But teachers, we should always be healthy and wealthy if we have faith. But you see, this is what happens if we are not rooted in God's word, if we don't value the ministries of God's word. This is what happens if we don't have a deep knowledge, a deep relationship and experience of Jesus Christ. This is what happens. This is what can happen if we are spiritually immature. Then we have the marks of maturity. There in verse 15 where it says, Instead, 
speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. Now you see, I've always seen this and used it and taught this in relation to the, the kind of attitude and, and behavior that should be part and parcel of mature Christian conversation. The way we speak, the things we say. Particularly when there are maybe fractious and contentious issues that we need to work through. That we should speak the truth, but we should seek to do so in love. Because truth without love can be used as a nasty, destructive weapon. And equally, there can be a, a spineless, sub-Christian form of love. A love that remains silent because I don't want to be unloving. I don't want to offend anybody even in the face of unholy and unholy living and outright heresy. Now, I still believe that this is a, a totally biblical thing that's been said, and it's part, I think, of what Paul is saying here. But I now believe that he is saying more than this, and that this is not, in fact, the main thing that he's trying to get across here. For you see, the word in the NIV that is translated speaking, speaking the truth in love, it can be translated in that way, but equally, and probably more likely because of the context here, this word can also carry the sense of to be true, to prove true. And some experts suggest, including the guy Harold Honer, suggest that a better translation here would be being truthful in love. And John Stott, he then develops this practically, suggesting that this includes the notions of maintaining, of living, and of doing the truth. So what Paul's saying then is that the marks of maturity, the marks of a spiritually mature church, the marks of a spiritually mature Christian, those marks will be truth and love, a concern for the truth, a concern to understand the truth of God and then to live according to his truth. And then in our lives to demonstrate his truth, to demonstrate that in our character, in our actions, in our values, in our concerns, in the things that drive us and motivate us and matter to us, to make sure that our lives in every way are in line with the truth of a mighty creator God and of a holy, compassionate, merciful God. Yes, so all the time seeking to, to ensure that our concern for the truth is balanced with love, with the unselfish love of God, that love that's sensitive to the needs of others, that love that puts the well-being of others before its own. But you see how this contrasts with those false teachers who mislead the immature. They are deceitful, not truthful. They are motivated not by self-sacrificial love, but by self-interest, by seeking selfish gain at the cost of others. Well, finally, very briefly, the aim of unity and maturity is laid out for us in verse 16, but we'll just lead into it from the end of verse 15. It says, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Then verse 16, from him the whole body 
joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, put it briefly, what I believe Paul is saying here is that as we live and grow in unity, and as we grow in maturity, with each one feeding the other, as then more and more we are people whose life is marked by truth and love, whose lives are an expression of truth and love, and as each one of us living in this way comes and offers our gifts, offers all that we are, in the church so that we might be together a Christian community that we might build together that Christian community well then this is the church as it's meant to be and this is a beautiful thing this is a powerful thing this is the church that makes an impression on this is the church that influences a needy and sinful world And this is the church that God calls his people to be. And I say by the grace of God, may we more and more be this church. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the teaching of your word, for what you teach us, of what you call us to be as your people, for what you teach us of what we need to beware of and what we need to nurture in our midst. Lord, we pray, help us to make your word central. Help us to seek your spirit that we might live out the life that you call your people to live, individually and as a body. And this we now pray in Jesus' name.